0: Hi there, XPRIZE fans, Etty Schechtman here, your host on the Future Positive podcast, a show from XPrize that aims to bring you the most future-forward topics, covering everything from AI to avatars to climate change and more. If you're new to the show, welcome and thanks for listening. In each episode, you'll hear from top scientists, creators, entrepreneurs, innovators and changemakers who are paving the way for innovation on this planet we call home. Today, we're talking about the future of mobility and how this future is electric, connected, autonomous, and shared. To achieve the self-driving vision, an estimated 100 billion US dollars has been invested globally, and it was pitched as the biggest change in mobility since we stopped using horses. Yet, in the midst of the COVID-19 global pandemic, where is this autonomous driving future we were promised stands? This episode, Will be an open conversation between Michelle Avery, Head of Automotive and Autonomous Mobility at the World Economic Forum, Mary Missy Cummings, Professor and Director of Duke University's Humans and Autonomy Laboratory, and Bryn Balcom, Founder of Roborace, as they discuss how COVID has altered our path to the future of mobility. <laughs>
2: So today I'm joined by Michelle Avery, Head of Automotive and Autonomous Mobility at the World Economic Forum. And Michelle, if you'd like to introduce yourself a little bit more, that'd be great.
3: Yes, hello, thank you. And we appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, the World Economic Forum is a private public partnership whose mission is to improve the state of the world. And when this relates to mobility, we work on three predominant areas. To make sure mobility is safe, that it's clean and that it's also inclusive. And we work at that intersection where the government is unable to solve the problem and industry can't solve the problem unless we come together to solve those problems. So we work in the intersection of policy, regulation and industry collaborations.
2: Thank you very much, Michelle. Um, And then I'm also joined by Missy Cummings, who's professor at Duke University and uh, notably one of the U.S. Navy's first female fighter pilots. So welcome, Missy. You give some background as well. That would be fantastic.
1: Thanks for having me. And so that's right. I'm a professor at Duke University. I'm in Duke Robotics and the lab that I direct is the Humans and Autonomy Laboratory. And my research really looks at the intersection of humans and autonomous technology and relevant to driverless cars. I have basically two thrusts. The first is looking at humans who are operating in and around autonomous systems. So I do a lot of work in driverless cars and drones, but we also look at how humans design these technologies. I think it comes as a big shock to a lot of people that Autonomous technologies, artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning. These are actually fairly subjective mathematical approaches to solving a problem. And so it turns out that there's a lot of human bias that can kind of creep into these technologies. And so we're also looking at better ways to design autonomous technologies.
2: Super. Thank you very much. So I'm just going to give, a, give everyone a, a brief opening, just a bit of background before we start the the main conversation, so to the COVID-19 pandemic. To slow the rate of transmission, governments around the world have implemented travel restrictions, quarantines, curfews, stay-at-home orders, and facility closures for all but essential workers. COVID-19 is undoubtedly a global health emergency, yet the simultaneous global response has created the world's largest social experiment. Research from the University College London showed that it takes between three weeks and eight months to change a habit and on average, just two months. So how much of the behavioral change we're experiencing will persist after the pandemic? What will this shape our new normal? How will that look? So coincidentally in 2020 was positioned as a pivotal year to address global warming. In January, Ove Samad, the UN climate change deputy executive secretary stated, the oceans are acidifying, the soil is degrading, crops are becoming less nutritious, Desertification is spreading, the ice caps are melting and we are destroying biodiversity. Climate change is not slowing down. We're not acting with enough urgency to address it. So in many ways, to me, it feels like Mother Nature has slapped us all around the face to take the necessary collective action. So COVID-19 is a tragedy for so many people. Yet it's also our greatest opportunity to refocus on what is truly essential for our future. So with that said, let's kick things off with some questions. So Michelle, Missy, um, 2020 was billed as prime time for the self-driving car industry. So where are the self-driving cars and trucks we were promised and why aren't they here? So Michelle, if you'd like to, to kick off, that would be great.
3: Sure. Well, obviously here in the United States and in the San Francisco Bay area where I'm located, most of the uh, all of the self-driving vehicle pilots and testing has been stopped and we're honoring all the shelter-in-place orders in places like china where we also have an office and we have um, people working there they're back on the roads and in fact in china we saw uh, many autonomous vehicles particularly in the delivery logistics space really stepping in to fill in that gap that we have on the transportation capacity. So we saw uh, many AVs providing non-contact, low and medium speed products, most notably JD.com, the Baidu Apollo, Neolux, and they were really addressing those transportation capacity constraints. Obviously, when you have road closures and lack of traffic, it made bringing these vehicles out in widespread or wider spread public usage a lot more palatable.
2: Michelle, do you think it's, it's regulation or technology that's kind of means that we haven't seen the dawn of autonomous vehicles for where we are now? Because the, the promise was that we would see these things on the road around 2020. Numbers varied, but it was around 2020.
3: Well, I think it's three things. I think we need clarity on regulation globally, without a doubt, that's needed but we also need technological validity as well as business model validity. One thing COVID-19 seems to be showing is there actually is a potentially very lucrative business model within this uh, logistics and delivery space for low and medium speed products. We'll see if the learning and the data that we're getting is uh, applicable when we start looking at higher speed, highly automated driving systems and how that looks. But we do need a clear path to market. We need regulation clarity, as well as technical validity.
2: Yeah, super. And and Missy, from from your perspective, why would you say we haven't seen the dawn of self-driving cars or trucks at this moment in time?
1: Well, I hate to be the nerd in the room, but there's actually a very specific reason why they haven't come to fruition. And that's really the problems with their perception systems. And so what that means is how the cars see the world. Uh, Most people believe that driverless cars need a combination of camera vision, lidar, radar, radar. Um, You know, some manufacturers, notably Tesla, thinks that they can do it with just uh, camera vision and uh, radar. So, but even when you have, when you add LIDAR to the mix, there are just some limitations about when the sensors can see the world in the way that the world needs to be seen under many different conditions, rain, snow, for example. Uh, And so... This is actually why the speed that we just heard about, speed does matter. So at highway speeds, the perception systems have to compute that much faster and take in that much more information. So that's why we're seeing cars on the highway. And this would also include things like platooning trucks have a much more difficult problem. Whereas slower speed vehicles, slow speed delivery shuttles, maybe some slow speed multi-passenger transport is having an, a better time at perceiving the world. Uh, I want to just qualify that to say that while slow speed does help, it still hasn't resolved all the issues around fragility of perception systems.
2: Yeah, okay. It's, and it's, it's, it's interesting because after you've solved perception, there's still a problem with prediction in terms of predicting the behavior of all the other road users. And I think that's, that's actually something that, will be coming to the fore as we progress in the perception quality system. But Missy, one, one of the other things you, you I was, when I read your paper on artificial intelligence and the future of warfare, so you obviously still have some contacts in that domain, but you make a very interesting distinction between automated and autonomous, which kind of, kind of sits somewhat against what the SAE say. So it'd be interesting to, to explore that a little bit. You know, what would you see as the difference between automated and autonomous?
1: Yeah, so I I think it's an important distinction that applies across a lot of communities, not just driving. But automated systems are systems that operate by deterministic rules. So when an algorithm runs in an automated system, it runs the same way every time. And thus, you have a very high certainty of how the system is going to perform. An autonomous system is making guesses about the world around it. And because of that, it embeds probabilistic reasoning algorithms. And it's these stochastic algorithms. That's a very fancy professor word. (laughs) Um, Uncertainty. But because of the high uncertainty, then that is why the system's autonomous systems are having to make the most reasonable guess under the circumstances that it can make. And so understanding that some systems can be very successful being automated. So robots in car manufacturing facilities, for example, are highly automated. They operate the same way every time, very precise, very repeatable. One of the problems with driverless cars, and this is becoming particularly acute in uh, certifying them, and this is true of military autonomous systems too, is that when the system doesn't perform the same way every time, even under the most benign conditions, then how can we ever put guarantees on its ability to navigate the world safely?
3: Right, it's like how we deal with teenagers. You know, when we think about it as, no, seriously, when you think about it, I do have a teenage son, so I think a good bit about this. But when you think about how we get a learner's permit or a driver's license, that actually doesn't um, assess how safe I'm going to be on the road um we and i know bren you've been very involved in some of the work we've been doing at the forum to really look at these issues using a scenario-based approach to av safety and we think this is a key way that we can help regulators truly understand um, what the safety is of a highly automated driving system in the context of its environment and that's based on how we think the vehicle should respond safely to factors in the environment, whether it's pedestrians, intersections, cyclists, garbage trucks, and then really build a better framework that is, forgive me, operational design domain specific.
2: <laughs> it's fascinating actually, because you know when I, I, I look back, I passed my test at 17. Um, I think I did it in 17 hours of learning. Um, but the, the moment I'd done that, uh, in the UK, I'm then able to travel internationally and drive internationally, you know, come over to the US and drive on the opposite side of the road in vehicles that are incredibly large with road regulations. I have no idea what they are. I'm not giving any guidance as to what they are. And yet I'm still able to to transfer, if you like, my knowledge and my learning from one environment to another and drive safely. Um, so I think that's... Wow. Uh, A really interesting point, (laughs) we're not there yet with AI or autonomous systems from what we can see so far.
3: Well and some will say we're not there with people yet either, that we have an operator problem. The FIA reports that 3,500 people are killed on our roads every single day. And even though we see a huge reduction in the amount of traffic and people on the roads right now, the amount of speeding hasn't declined. And the fact that there are still fatalities and collisions happening, even here in the Bay Area, is is frankly quite shocking, because while I think we can agree there's never a good time to get into an auto collision, now is a really bad time to be entering into an emergency room. But if you think about that sheer number of 1.3 million deaths a year and 50 million injuries, clearly we have an operator problem when it comes to Light passenger vehicles or road vehicles. And that's where I think this this promise of highly automated driving systems, really, it it is a promise, I understand that, but I think we really need to go forward and look at in this idea, this ideal world, what is the new approach to mobility safety? And it shouldn't just focus on reducing fatalities caused by vehicles but also as you're, in your opening comments on the vehicle's polluting effects, which we know are very detrimental. So we really yeah. support going with alternative powertrains, but we also believe that we need to have a safe use of the shared public spaces so it can be safer for pedestrians, cyclists, motorcyclists, as well as protecting the public health by eliminating these opportunities for contagion which was really part of that biosafety view of what we saw coming out of China and using these non-contact, low-speed, highly automated vehicles for delivery in areas that were locked down. We really should explore more of these and think about where we can remove some of the biosafety risks to uh, our essential workers. Can we minimize those?
2: Yeah, for sure. Missy, when, you, when we talk about um, automated and autonomous, but you, you also have a, an interesting graduation scheme, I think, which goes from skills to rules to knowledge to expertise and it's a, it's a very interesting path. I think it'd be good to take the, the listeners through that if that's possible.
1: Yeah, so um, I would of course encourage you to go to my website at Duke University. Just type <laughs> my name into Google and it will get you there and I have a whole series of papers that show you how autonomous systems reason and how humans reason. And um, it's one of the things that we're seeing quite clearly is as long as uncertainty is low uh, and the speed that systems can reason in is is low enough, that autonomous systems really prevail in something we call skill and rule-based reasoning. So this is why most planes are highly automated because they don't need to have fancy autonomous perception sensors. Planes are automated. Planes that take off and land by themselves are have a high degree of automation, and, uh, and under low uncertainty, they do well. The problem where we start to break that down is when something goes wrong, in areas of high uncertainty. And so the example I like to give is Chesley Sullenberger and the Miracle of the Hudson. Right. Yeah. So there was a plane. Uh, Two engine failure, now the commercial plane is a glider, a decision had to be made, maximum uncertainty, could the plane get to a runway? Was it gonna have to be be put down in the water? And so he ended up being able to cope with massive uncertainty with um, extremely good outcomes that uh, doubtful would have happened had uh, an automated or autonomous system been in place. Now that's not to say that we never will get there We're just not there right now. And so I'm a big fan of all sorts of automated and autonomous systems, as long as we understand something that I call function allocation. Do you really understand what functions should be done by a computer? uh, And do you understand what functions should be done by a human? Sometimes they can be different. Uh, You know, in the case of automated landing, Airplanes do better all the time. When I was a carrier pilot, the automation always did a better landing as a carrier pilot. But under when there's an emergency and there's something wrong with the automation, then there's a problem. And in fact, we saw that humans can break down under these circumstances as well in the Asiana crash in the Bay Area, where the pilots were too used to having so much automation that they had skill degradation. And so in that particular case, the airlines did not understand that because of the degree of automation, but the fact that the automation wasn't perfect and it would have to be taken down every now and then that we still need a a human and we still need to train the human. So this is gonna be different for every domain that you apply it to. But if you don't understand when your system breaks down under uncertainty and you don't have a human, a correctly trained human, to intervene under those times of uncertainty then you're going to have traumatic outcomes but that being said you know i do believe that moving into an autonomous driving scenario i think the best balance that you're going to get there is under slow speed operations and in the short term i think slow speed delivery of goods whether it's groceries for example or medicine i think that that is the driverless car domain that has the best chance of surviving. And I do mean that. I think that the COVID-19 scenario is going to really decimate the driverless car community. Just before this happened, Starsky, the automated freight company went under. I think you're gonna see more driverless car technology start to go under Those companies that survive will be the ones that figure out that the delivery slow speed operations is the right way to go in the near
2: term. Yeah, no, I would agree it's interesting, Missy, the the parallels, I think what we're, we're learning is that autonomous and robotic systems apply doesn't matter what the domain, so you were talking about airlines, it applies some of the same philosophies apply, so that over trust of current level two systems that we're seeing on the road is, is, is actually a big issue. It's a big safety issue. And when it comes to training, they're untrained operators. They're not given any guidance as to where or when these systems might fail. They're just given the executive order to say, you are responsible. I'm sorry, but you are responsible. The, you are the driver of this vehicle. We're assisting you. You are responsible. Now, Correct. That, that is really difficult to then understand but when is this system going to fail? And I I tried to equate it. It's like the the hype has always been about, okay, we can sit in our cars, read our books, um, relax. It takes away the load. But the, the reality of a level two system is that you act like a driving instructor. You have someone else who's driving the car for you, and it's your job to monitor not only the environment and the risk that's presented by the environment, but whether the other driver is perceiving that environment correctly and taking the appropriate action. And if it isn't, it's your job to intervene. And we're doing that, that, that already,
3: Bren. We're doing that yeah. already with our cars and with our advanced driver assistance systems. We're already confusing vehicle owners and operators. And if you look out every single day, you have anecdotal evidence that people actually don't like to drive. I hear it all the time that I love driving, I'm never gonna give it up. And I really challenge that because we see so many people on the roads today doing anything other than actually effectively controlling that 3,000-pound vehicle that can and does kill people. We know this enough. So it's what can we do to help streamline ADAS systems, help really better train the operator. And- I admit, I am the reason why we want highly automated driving systems. I'm terrible on the road. I drive very aggressively. I feel like I own the place. And I really feel that a lot of people are really terrible operators, even with ADAS systems as well, and that we can do something better. And when we think about the shakeout that's happening in the Silicon Valley and also with Within the highly automated driving space, there is a flip side to it. You know, there is still venture capital out there. They're still sitting on a lot of money and they need to allocate those monies, or they're not even they don't even have a chance of getting any return on it. So there is still money in this industry. And it also means as as um, some of these companies start struggling that the cost to invest in these companies has just decreased. So I'm actually hoping that as the shakeout happens, that those really great startups start rising to the top and maybe do get acquired or we do see some more consolidation happening at them. Because I think it would be really unfortunate if we didn't press forward in developing highly automated driving systems for mass scale, even if it is beginning in the delivery space. And I agree completely with Missy that this is where we need to be pointing our interest right now and our efforts. Yeah.
2: And Missy, obviously a lot of the self-driving car industry started with a DARPA challenge. So it started sort of in the military domain and then has progressed into the you know the civil domain, if you like, the commercial domain. And I think you've made some interesting comments before about, as Michelle was mentioning, the cost of developing this technology and the price point for the talent, because the talent is so rare, having an impact on military development. So it'd be good to get your insights on that and how you see that changing.
1: Yeah, so I think that that what has happened in the last 10 years is probably the strangest inversion of talent um, attraction that we've ever seen. The military did actually develop all this autonomous vehicle technology and then Uh, it jumped into the commercial sphere and totally skipped military development, which is normally what would happen. And so now what has happened in the country is that all the real top talent is either in Silicon Valley or wants to be in Silicon Valley and uh, working on commercial technologies, you know, which is great, except that now what we have is I call it the tumbleweed going across defense industry because the defense industry, in the United States at least, and I suspect um, this is true in some countries globally, that we don't have enough top talent going into defense industry. And so the autonomous vehicle development is happening way faster in the commercial world than the military world. I tell people all the time that it is very possible that there could be some kind of conflict situation where civilians have access to flying cars and military people do not. And when we have that kind of weird technology inversion where there's more capable technology in the civilian world than in the military world, there's obviously some defense implications that aren't good. Uh, and we need to really rethink then, how, you know, how are we attracting talent and, and I think the defense industry really needs to look hard internally to change the way they're doing business, right? So people don't want to work in the defense industry and to a large part, academia also needs to think about how they're training people.
2: Yeah. no, I think it's going to be a really interesting shift that comes from that. I think we said before, AI and robotics as generic fields look like they're going to continue to increase over time. You know, and I think COVID-19 has even shown that in various different sectors. So the expertise that's being built will continue. It will then be interesting to see which markets that's going to be dominant in. You know, I think we've already said with the AV market, we may see a shift away from the carrying of people to carrying of goods. But Michelle, we, we've discussed before that um, carrying of people has a, a premium that the carry, carrying of goods doesn't at the moment. So commercially, it's more attractive to move people than goods.
3: Yeah, the margins do tend to be higher. And, and I think we're seeing that right now in the ride hailing industry, where um, a driver's ability to make money is better when they move people than when they're delivering food. Um, it just, the the, lot, the economics of it makes sense. I do think um, if we look at the future scenario of this contactless or low contact and low or medium speed, products as being ideal for highly automated driving systems, we should look at public transit, companies like TransDev, who have and operate fixed route systems. We see here in the Bay Area, we took our bus routes down from 90 90 routes to about 17 routes. And in a city of 700,000 people, we still have 100,000 people who are essential workers who need to get to work. The subways are closed, the light rails are closed. These people are really, really stuck. And what happens is you put a lot of stress on the drivers of these buses and the operators of these systems and the cleaners of these systems. And I think it's worth, when as we look forward, thinking about biosafety is, at what point are we putting drivers at risk as well? And is there an opportunity to do a couple of things? One is look at not only um, making sure essential workers are safe by taking um, some risks out of the system by bringing in highly automated driving systems, but also can we look at reducing some of the future cost of public transit? Because we know that for public transit right now, they're usually subsidized by about a dollar per ride but we know that ridership is gonna go down probably at orders of magnitude of 50 or 60%. We're seeing that in China right now where they're back open, but public transit has not picked up. It's picked up at about 30% compared to traffic is back at 70 or 80% of normal. So if we look at that, we need to really balance this need for getting people back to work, securing important jobs of which bus drivers and transit operators are, but also balancing the biosafety risks as well as the cost. And there's no easy answer to this, strategic tensions that exist. The only way to move forward with this is to have community-based discussions on how we can deploy some of these systems where we can and how we should do it to not only protect workers and jobs, but also biosafety as
2: well. Missy, one of your latest papers that I did manage to finish reading yesterday was about autonomous vehicle dispatch operations. So, you know, being able to then control all of these entities in the environment. And I think that's also important. It's something that's often overlooked, but you've made some good comments about Waymo and their facilities. But managing these vehicles and managing them safely, managing them remotely becomes really important when we're looking at mobility and shared mobility in particular.
1: Yes, so I think this is an often overlooked area about what does remote control or remote operation of these vehicles look like. And so I've recently released a report on my website that addresses all of those factors. So one of the questions I get asked quite a bit is, why can't we just remotely control cars? If they, if they can't operate all the time in all conditions, then why can't we just have a building somewhere in the world and have people ready, almost like a driving game where they, they <laughs> yeah. drive their way out of it. And you know, for the longest time, and, and certainly that's how we've been operating uh, drones. In the early days of drones, they were remotely flown that way. But one of the things that we found out in the early days of drone operations was that when you had somebody do the takeoff and landing remotely that there was a high crash rate and eventually the Air Force, the US Air Force had to ban people from remotely operating takeoffs and landings that had to be purely automated and the reason was because of the time latency and the control loops and these issues also are very relevant for driverless cars there is a time delay that's going to be, that occurs in any kind of transmission. And then there's something else called the neuromuscular lag. which yeah. is, It's inherent in every human that, that from the time your eye see something and it can actually transition in your head to an action with your hand, then, um, you know, you're, you're looking at about a half second delay. Um, and for, you know, that's quick but a lot of bad things can happen in the driving domain especially at highway speeds in a half second and so if you're expecting a remote control driver who has to perceive the world with their half-second neuromuscular lag and then the lag of the communications network both ways you're really just setting up the situ- the situation for very very bad outcomes so yeah. uh, I say, no, 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 no remote operation driverless cars, unlo- for, unless it's like very slow things like backing a car out of a ditch or something like that. But then there's a whole nother layer of things we have to think about. Uh, how are we gonna put, have these dispatch services? How many people do you need to supervise a fleet of cars? The reason Waymo had to shut down in the COVID-19 crisis, they had to shut down their purely driverless car fleet and in Arizona and people wanna know why is that? If the cars are driving themselves, why do we need to shut that down? I would say, number one, there's a sanitation issue uh, inside the car. You, you know, if you're going to change out passengers, that's a nightmare for how do you guarantee cleanliness in a car. But it also turns out that there are so many people that are needed right now to supervise driverless cars inside these remote operation centers that you ca- there were too many people inside the remote operation centers. And so this kind of points to a larger problem that we have with autonomous systems that people don't often realize is that. While some aspects of human tasking disappear, often it moves the responsibility of humans to some other place. And in this case of driverless car remote supervision, um, at least with current technology, the remote operation centers are so populated that it's not clear yet that we've reached a point where the business model
3: really makes sense. We've seen this in telematics for 20 years that we've, we've had connected vehicles that can respond in the envision in the event of an airbag deployment. You've got um, automatic airbag notification where you have emergency personnel come on and help um, people find out where the vehicle is and The safety of of the occupants and then deliver emergency services to them. So we're really very, very familiar with what it takes to using cellular systems and GPS systems to monitor vehicles remotely and in some instances control them remotely and there are limitations to it. And as we look at highly automated driving systems, particularly in a fleet environment, there's no doubt that remote monitoring is going to be necessary for this, not just for dealing with the cleanliness factor, but also dealing with occupant safety. If you look at public transit systems right now, a place like New York City, probably a a third or so of the police force is dedicated to policing transit systems. Because we know that if we expand our definition of safety from let's not just run over people or hit things, let's not just worry about biosafety, but you actually do have to worry about your physical safety when you're unfortunately with other people because assaults, murders, these things happen. They happen to DD drivers, they happen in these systems as well. So there will still need to be this idea of monitoring. When it comes to operations, I think there are some um, scenarios where it can be possible to help um, remotely move a vehicle in these low-speed situations, but not fully operational as you would as you would if it was me.
2: Missy, and you, you said before there there are almost two types of remote operations. So you have the sort of steering wheel, throttle, brake. You know, you you remove those, and you're trying to do real-time comms, but. There's also sort of more goal directed ways of controlling these vehicles remotely, which may have some safety benefits or some other, um, ben- yeah, some other benefits actually in terms of latencies.
1: Yes, right. So I'm going to put my nerd hat on again. Um, there's a difference between rate control, remote control and goal based um, remote right. control. And indeed, almost every, in every system I've ever been in, it's never a good idea to give anyone rate control remotely because of those time latencies that we're talking about. So if we took out the rate control from drone pilots, how do they operate now? Well, they actually just put waypoints into the system and tell the aircraft where to go, and then the aircraft locally figures out where to go. So that is going to be the key to the future of fleets of um, automated vehicles, is that they can be commanded with goals and then locally the cars can figure out where they need to go to execute the goals. So there are some distinct advantages that we will be able to, when we have fleets of cars that we can command in this way, even at low um, market penetration rates, there could be some very profound impacts. One of the problems that we have in North Carolina for example are hurricanes And when a hurricane is coming towards the coast, we have to reverse um, all the lanes. So all, you know, uh, six lanes on an interstate will be reversed from uh, two-way to one-way out traffic. And if you have remote vehicles that you can command by uh, to goals to say basically either turn around or just don't ever go east, always go west, then you can actually get evacuations to be much safer, much more efficient, much less congested. And so the idea of the commanding fleets of vehicles in emergencies, or you can even imagine after a big game, any kind of sports game that cars could help influence traffic, even with low market penetration rates. And and there've been a lot of simulations that can show some real advantages. So uh, I'm a big fan of thinking through this. I, I think... One of the most important things people need to realize is, even though the the technology isn't here today for you to buy your own driverless car and be able to jump in the backseat and go to Las Vegas, for example, I'm not saying it never will be, it's just not here today and we don't have the sensor technology. We still need to give money to universities to research. Of course, I'm in a university, I'm gonna say that, but there's just some (laughs) fundamental challenges where we need to figure out some sensor limitations and some processing limitations, I am very optimistic about the long-term future. I think in the short-term, we can get driverless delivery vehicles, slow speed, but in the long-term, the Mm -hmm. sky's
3: the limit. Well, I think it's also true with the shuttles, with the low-speed shuttles, which we see. Um, in operation in many places. And there are companies out there that are doing remote monitoring and remote assistance. There's a company called Designated Driver that is working on these things on low-speed shuttles quite effectively. And I think we need to continue not only investing in these types of startups and these companies, but also continue deploying in them and getting real data. So once we get out of these low-speed highly constrained um, geo-fenced situations we can grow into these broader higher speed movement of people more completely.
2: I find it uh, fascinating actually back in the in the UK there used to be a speed limit when the when the automobile first came out when people didn't trust it over the horse so there was about uh, 20 miles an hour and, and 20 miles an hour now seems to be the number that we're all heading back towards because actually there's less chance of a fatal collision at 20 miles an hour. So if you're in an urban environment, that's really the target speed that cities are now going for. So when we talk about low speed urban mobility, the 20 mile an hour mark seems to be about the right target. So you've severely reduced the level of risk that's associated with operating that service in the first place. So that can then compensate for the sort of where the technology is at the moment.
3: Yeah, we just want to make sure that in those situations that we're sharing enough of the data and the learnings, whether it's on campuses, university campuses on shuttles, whether it's in port facilities, we really need to make sure that we're sharing the data and the learning more widely, because we don't think that every single company and every single operator needs to learn safety firsthand. We think that if there is an incident, we should really be learning from each other on these, particularly for these um, outliers. And that's one of the things that we at the forum are really looking at doing with the safety pool project and with the work we're doing on data for AV safety is to begin sharing these learnings because some of these really are not competitive advantages. There's plenty of places to compete on, but we don't believe that core safety is one of
2: them. Yeah, and I think, Missy, when you start to look at the, the dispatch centers, um, at the moment there's a, a metric within California which tends to look at disengagements as kind of an indicator as to how well the system is performing or not performing, you know. so. What, what do you think those metrics will be in the future as as we move to the dispatch centers what are, what do you imagine they're going to be monitoring you know you've mentioned things like having a, an, a very accurate world model viewpoint um before so making sure the vehicles are aware of the situations and the risks that are exhibited by the situations so do you think it will be those types of metrics that will come to the fore in the future
1: disengagements are not a good metric disengagements I only show you a partial picture and um, I've been strongly advocating uh, both on Capitol Hill and more broadly across the community. And And I'm, I'm reaching out to the World Economic Forum, please, let's work together on helping establish what I call a vision test for cars. Since we know that the perception systems right now are the long pole in the tent, I think that we really, as a community, uh, and I don't want to leave this up to the regulatory agencies because the national Highway Traffic Safety Administration is completely inept in this area. We need to come together as a community to set what we think are safe enough guidelines for what the minimums that perception systems might uh, be able to provide. So that's at the car level. Now at the um, remote control center level, I think that these remote control centers should never be about safety. Uh, in terms of the local environment of a car. So uh, a car should always be able to reason itself out of its local safety indications. This is why we can never rely, I see many of you talking about DSRC and various other um, communication technologies. Cars can never rely on any remote communication for safe emergent actions. So for example, automated emergency braking needs to work by itself all the time. But what can remote centers do for safety? So one of the big areas in the future that we see is things like hurricane evacuation or things like there's a a massive pile up, there's a big accident, how to divert cars and reroute cars away from that so that we can provide faster ambulance response times. And so I think those kinds of metrics will actually be able to establish at the fleet level why and when and where it pays to have fleets of, of various levels of autonomous cars. And, and in fact, it's at what market penetration. So that's another thing that a lot of people are doing research on right now. You know, if there's just a handful of autonomous cars in the environment, that's, you know, that, that's not going to be enough to change any major trends of safety or efficiency. So one of the things that we need to be forward looking is how many need to be out there and what kinds of communication protocols and also what happens when you have the gremlins and the pintos on the road who can't talk to anybody at all as opposed to you know, autonomous vehicles that do have the latest and greatest uh, in terms of communications and cars that are anywhere in between. So, for example, that might have some kind of GM OnStar capability. So I think there's a lot of research still to be done in heterogeneous fleet management.
2: Yeah, I think from my perspective, I'm really interested in the, you know, traditionally, it's been, unfortunately, it's been fatalities and collisions that we've, we've actually assessed safety by. Thirty-seven to 40,000 people die a year on the US roads. So if we want AVs to be better, what sort of reduction are we looking for? You know, is it tenfold? Is it a hundredfold? And then with those deaths, you know, how do they get distributed between all the different companies? So is it really fatalities that we should be looking at when we're doing comparisons between, or setting that how safe is safe enough bar? Or is it something that's actually you know adds more clarity into the, the safety, looks at things like near-miss collisions and identifies those and highlights those as leading metrics before we even get into the lagging metrics of fatality?
3: I have to just agree wholeheartedly with Missy about disengagements. We yeah. at the forum have been talking a lot about that. And we do speak with regulators as well, not just um, NHTSA, but also all over the world we work with a lot of different governments on this topic. And we agree that it does need to be a partnership. And the regulators are also saying that it needs to be a partnership. And they really do want to engage with the private sector to help figure out what is the right term to be measuring these. If it isn't in disengagements, what are those metrics? And that's part of what we're doing with data for AV safety and some of our other work, is to figure out what that metric should be. But when it comes to definitions of safety, as I stated before, we do need to broaden that definition that includes not just reducing fatalities, but also looking at um, how we use shared space safely. So we're really advocating for a much broader definition of safety.
2: Next, I was gonna talk about cybersecurity because obviously within that Mm. space at the moment, you have security operation centers. You know, these are 24 365, running all the time, checking the security of networks, constantly checking. So for any software update that's made, they're continually checking. Now, I think the same will need to exist in my mind for automated vehicles, not just from the security perspective, but from a safety perspective. So when you're doing a new AV rollout of new software in the real environment, you still need to monitor that behavior. No matter how much testing you've done beforehand, it's real world behavior is what is of most concern to the general public. So I can definitely see a role from that. But yeah, just in terms of the cybersecurity, what's your views around around that? Whether that's part of the A V system or you see it actually as as part of the base vehicle platform, regardless of whether it's the A V. Uh, system itself? Well, um,
3: we, are, we are looking at cyber resiliency and we do look at these systems. That, you know, you can go back to telematic systems and the ability to download software remotely into vehicles happens now and it has been happening for quite some time, whether it's wireless or once you're stopped and plugged in over Wi Fi or through some of the other made ways that you can do it. And when you do update software, obviously you need to test it beforehand. And once it's out there, you need to continue to monitor it. So I I do know that in the telematics and connected car space, there already is a culture of cyber resiliency. And that's not gonna change once we move to highly automated driving systems at all. Can these systems be improved? Yeah, of course they can all be improved. And do they? is it something that we need to keep a lookout on? Without a doubt. And that's also something where we see things like the auto ISAC needs to really look at going global and also needs to begin looking at some of these other systems. And so that's an area of cyber resiliency that we've had on our plate of things to do at the World Economic Forum and are planning to go forward with this summer. Um, Probably beginning with helping municipalities look at how they can begin managing or really examining and considering cyber resiliency when they think about some of these fleets operating in their local domains. Um, That's probably the first place we'll begin looking at it. Although we do at the forum have a platform for cybersecurity that is um, working in this space with um, software as well for downloading into the vehicles.
2: And Missy, obviously that's a, it's, a, it's a problem that doesn't just exist for autonomous vehicles, it's AI and robotics in general. You know, if you're yeah. gonna start influencing decisions of these systems which impact people's lives, potentially in a fatal manner, then cybersecurity becomes a huge risk in in all of those environments, whether that's healthcare or medical and
1: yes. I would say one of the biggest concerning areas I have seen in my own personal experiences as an academic is the growth of adversarial machine learning. So this is still very much inside the academic space. But what what we're doing in academia right now will eventually end up in some Russian hackers tool set very quickly. And that is the ability to trick any kind of system using machine learning, um, especially computer vision with a set of algorithms uh, that basically can target vulnerabilities inside machine learning systems. And so this goes back to the inability of humans to see their own biases in the development of these algorithms but um, if you haven't seen the uh, video on youtube of a tesla being tricked into going from 35 miles an hour to 85 miles an hour with a piece of tape on the 35 mile per hour sign it's really worth seeing because that is the very best um, illustration of what the problem is and but but it applies in other areas too the idea of face recognition. Some of the best Twitter pictures, memes that I've seen lately are when makeup artists will put eyes on different parts of their faces. So if you will paint eyes in a weird place on your face, that will be enough to throw off a face recognition system. And this kind of points to it points to a more broader hubris that I see in a lot of organizations, government, regular industry. It is the hubris that we want to buy the thing. And if we buy the thing, and the thing can be a face recognition system or it can be a car, but we wanna believe that the buying of the thing will solve all of our problems. And so Mm -hmm. I think that we are living in a time where we put so much faith in technology will solve our problems Um, that we forget that, well, you know, technology, especially if you're gonna start using technology that is really not mature, it's just really important to remember that I am like everyone else, I want what I want now, and I'd like to have my solutions now. But unfortunately, there are some things that we should not have now. And I tell people, the, the yardstick is, if I'm still being surprised as an academic, if people are writing papers that are blowing me away about deep learning and the fragility and the brittleness of deep learning, mm, we may not be ready to, to market those technologies whole hog across a number of industries. And so that's why I'm a real fan of the testing and evaluation. Because of the autonomous nature and the stochastic nature of these technologies, normal, the regular way that we used to test technologies does not hold up anymore. So we need to find new ways to test and validate technologies, which is why I think we should all come together out in Silicon Valley and find a way to
3: do this. Well, that's so, also at the heart of the World Economic Forum is, is exactly that, is looking at what are those important regulatory or global architectures that we need to coordinate and share. So if you think about cyber resiliency and if you think about um, uh, the automotive ISAC and we know that in the financial industry there's a lot of sharing of best practices that happen and then you look at something like ICAO within the aviation industry and you bring those together we really do need to be forming international global cooperative structures that allow for the private sector as well as governments to really begin sharing because it isn't going to be a one and done in this. It isn't going to be just create a product and deliver it. It's going to take creating more collaborations globally to really manage, roll out and solve a lot of these. So that's a a huge part of what we're doing at the forum is really hoping to dare I say, increase globalization
2: these days? Yeah, I think it's essential, Michelle. So I I do a lot of work, obviously, through the ITU, uh, especially with the UNECE forums, you know, the sort of global harmonization forums, whether it's for safety or for vehicle standards, so WP1, WP29. And obviously, automated driving is a a key focus within both of those forums, they have separate work streams looking at that. And, And really being able to say, okay, look, our focus at the moment tends to be on very narrow ODDs. That's where we are at the moment. But what does that look like globally? You know, Will we ever get to a point where you can run a test on a vehicle uh, in one country and then, as the convention allows, be able to export that product to another environment and it be used safely within that environment? And I, I think there's a, there's a long journey between those two things. What I also see within that forum, and as picking up on some regulatory comments that were made, is, is there's, a, there's a bit of a difference actually. And there's still a bit of discussion as to whether the vehicle drives itself or software drives the vehicle. And I, and I think Missy, it would be interesting to get your perspective on that because the, the human driver, we can get into various different vehicles. We're, we're the same intelligent being. We perceive the environment in much the same way, whether we're in one vehicle or another. But that capability for software to swap from one vehicle to another just isn't there yet. And it's a question of whether it will ever get there. Yes,
1: yeah, somebody asked if we could convert old cars to driverless cars. No, don't even try. <laughs> bad, bad, bad idea. I am not a fan of aftermarket AV technologies for all kinds of reasons, um, but there's, we are, I'm not saying that that will never be a product that will sell, but we are nowhere close to having any kind of aftermarket. Uh, in fact, the national Highway Traffic Safety Administration, as much as as much as they drive me crazy, they actually did have a good decision. They shut one company down that was that's trying okay. to do that. So they even recognized that that's not, not going to um, be an issue.
2: How do you separate a, a driver from the vehicle? So
1: I wanted to talk to you about a really interesting project, that a related project that happened that I worked on with a company called Aurora Flight Sciences, who's now part of Boeing, We actually were able to successfully build a robotic arm that could fly one old aircraft and then you could pick up the robotic arm and put it in a different cockpit to fly a different aircraft. And so that's that same idea, like, can we make a robot generalize across different vehicle types, for example? We could do that in the aviation space because the perception task was not the critical task, so it all the information about where you are in space in an aircraft is coming from so many other old mature sensors that there didn't have to be a lot of reasoning about where the aircraft was in space, and you can't see anything out of those windows, so you know it it, it was fine to be able to generalize like that. But again, you know, why can't we make software that ports easily from one um, vehicle to another? And that's because each vehicle has its own different set of dynamics and where the sensors have to sit, where you get all the right fields of view. So within a single car, obviously that's how co- um, co- companies are doing it right now, but that is actually why you can't have these add-on aftermarket technologies is because what it would take to get the same world model, which is the brain of the autonomous system, what it would take to get a a world model to be correct, takes so much retraining and retuning that this just does not make for a viable product, at least not right now.
2: Yeah, and I think that's that's the interesting thing. So the convention goes back to 1949 and 1968, depending on which country you, you, you're resident in. Um, so they, they've lasted a very long time. And some of the behavioural expectations from drivers have remained consistent. And they are the framework that enable us to move into different countries, move from one country to another as humans and drive safely. So I'm I'm really fascinated. I would say at the moment we're in this you know, let's say generation one of autonomous vehicles where we're focused around the SAE language and things like the automated driving system or the ADS, which encompasses both the software and the hardware. And I think that's a a technical limitation of where we are, Missy, is it's easier to take a vehicle and actually retrofit that vehicle. I know it's not the same as a, a, a Comma AI approach, but it's kind of like, let's take a physical vehicle and add something to the top, which is the ADS, which then has all of the sensors, but we're controlling the sensors and the software because there's a very tight coupling required between the two at the moment. but at that point, is what is the driver? You know, what is responsible for making sure that it adheres to these you know the, the UN Convention on road traffic? Is it the software, or is it the entire system that sits underneath it?
1: Well, I mean, so I hear two different questions in there. I hear a question about how should we certify an autonomous driver and which is different, but related to the question of, so what are humans doing in this scenario for, why do we even have humans? And, you know, it it, it sounds like some weird matrix movie that needs to be made instead of harnessing us for our energy that our bodies put out. Um, the, the one thing that humans where we reign supreme is the eyeball connected to the brain, right? So, you know, we are visioning systems um, as fallible as we are. There is no autonomous system right now that can match our ability to see information in the world and then process it very quickly to more nuanced evolutions like in monitoring intent. Somebody else was asking about pedestrians. Yeah. You know, we can tell with very small cues what pedestrian intent is. We do that not because, not just because we see it, but because we've had so much experience. Like for example, driving around a campus where students will come out of nowhere with a skateboard, right? So I know to expect that because I have the experience. And this is where that knowledge and judgment under uncertainty really comes to bear. So right now, what we provide, what the best thing that we provide for driving is judgment under uncertainty. Uh, Just as you know, we've heard before. Look, if we could get automated emergency braking, I, 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 I'm just askance that this is not mandated on every vehicle in every country at all times. This should just be a core technology. Because we are definitely distracted and we rear in people all the time because we're not paying attention, and we know 100% that that technology will nearly eviscerate that problem. Uh, but other than that, you know, right now, humans, we still need judgment under uncertainty. And I don't care how many sensors that you mount on the car, there is, I know that there's a move afoot right now to make the roof rack of sensors that you can sell and put on any different car, it's still not gonna replicate judgment under uncertainty. I don't care if you have 20 LIDARs on a car. I don't care if you have the best roof rack sensor on the car, that you are not gonna solve this problem by putting more sensors on a car because until we figure out how to at least replicate in part judgment under uncertainty, all the sensors in the world are not going to solve that problem.
2: Yeah, I like to say as well, before, before I was 17 and passed my test, I've I'd, I'd been a passenger in cars all my life, I've been a pedestrian, I've been a cyclist, I've you know, been on a skateboard next to the road. So all of the things in the environment that an autonomous vehicle has to deal with, I've experienced that firsthand. So when I get into the vehicle it's I have all of that world knowledge that I'm bringing with me. And I, I think that can be incredibly valuable for your understanding of how the world works that's around you. And at the moment, we're just, you know, let's say training these vehicles, but the way that we're training them isn't the same experiences that we've had on the road. So there's a very big difference between the way humans are learning, as we've learned all the way through our lives, and how autonomous vehicles are learning. And I think that's
3: where the different business models and the different use cases as to where we apply highly automated driving systems is going to come into bear. I mean, the, the, if we think about this technology as being deployed in fleets, initially low speed fleets that are delivering goods, and then we move it into shuttles that are fixed routes or in a known lanes and places. We can begin adapting and bringing these out. But the idea of dropping this technology on a lot of light passenger vehicles and then selling them in mass as we do currently with vehicles doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense from an economic perspective or from even maintaining the machine. I do believe that in the near future, we're going to continue seeing these technologies deployed in a fleet operator environment, which is a fundamental shift in the way that light passenger vehicles are bought, sold, operated, and the economics of it are completely different. And as we begin to learn, then we can begin rolling these out in different ways. But I do believe also with Missy in the importance of ADAS systems and getting more and more of these advanced safety systems out there. And to that point, I think we need a lot more coordination and quite frankly, a lot more education on our drivers as to how to use these advanced driver assistance systems that are available now. Because they can be quite confusing. They can be inappropriately named which people have different expectations for how they operate or don't operate. So we need to use our words very specifically and in a unified manner around these systems. But I don't think there's um, any doubt that we have an operator problem when it comes to drivers and that's us. And we need to do a lot better job training us how to drive these vehicles and to communicate better.
2: Yeah, I think, I think what's been fascinating as we've gone into the, the COVID-19 pandemic is, is really everybody's stay at home. So we've actually stopped traveling and we've seen like a number of benefits in terms of let's say, road fatalities, but also with the environment because we've stopped traveling. So it opens up the question now of why are we traveling, not just how are we traveling. And I think when we start to look at electric, connected, autonomous, shared, they're all about how we travel. They don't actually address the issue of why are we traveling in the first place? You know, well, All right. you know friend, you you, it's,
3: a very, All it's right. a very privileged position that we have that we don't have to travel. There are a hundred thousand right. essential workers in San Francisco right now that do have to travel. And yeah. a lot of these are our working poor who do not have access to a vehicle. We've done a lot of work around um, the Detroit area to show that the cost of owning a private vehicle is astronomically high, and you don't have a public transportation system in place that actually is delivering something that is viable. So yeah. our, already, There's a huge part of the population that needs mobility. And when COVID-19 is, when, when some of this is behind us and we're able to get back out and traveling, we really need to look at these broader systems of mobility and this giant stress test that COVID has deployed on top of it. And really think about how we're moving people and what is universal basic mobility. Because it's essential for our economic livelihood, not just for our ability to feed ourselves and get to um, critical services like hospitals. But overall, we're going to have to get back to work. And that means having a a functioning mobility system. And it's not one thing. It's gonna be multimodal, and it needs to be better integrated and we're going to need a lot more collaboration between the private space and the public transit operators to help figure this out. It's not going to be easy, but if we don't start having these discussions and thinking it through, we're going to be in really dire straits recovering from this economic recession that we're going through right now.
2: Yeah, it's it's, it's really interesting, Michelle. When you start to look, you know, I, I was looking for the UN stats, so I. I I read 55% of the world population live in urban areas at the moment and that proportion is expected to increase to 68% by 2050 living in urban areas. So it, again, in, in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, can you ever, can you ever imagine a government saying, right, to project against the future spread of a pandemic, we're going to actually increase the population size, increase the density and we're going to place you all in a city. We're going to increase the proximity of which you all live. So, At the moment, as a society, we are moving towards denser and denser city populations. But is that really where we want to be heading? You know, and how does the mobility change if we take that view that actually, we want to actually increase sort of de-urbanization, to use that expression?
3: Well, I'm not sure I have thought through comments on that. I can talk a little bit about rural mobility, which is an area that that we feel that a lot of, of, populations have been left behind on this new mobility innovations that we've been seeing. And by that, I mean ride hailing, ride sharing, on demand, um, micromobility, definitely leave behind large swaths of the population. And we need to be thinking about how we ensure that our rural communities have access to mobility. And it is, you know, you can argue about universal basic income or universal basic mobility. The idea is, though, you need to get people to places where they can have a high quality of life, which means employment, education, health, the basics of, of food, shelter. So you do need people to be able to move. That includes rural populations. That includes the elderly, the disabled. And that also means looking at the different ways in which different segments of our community need to move. Obviously women have different commute patterns than men typically do. And we need to be really thinking about this, getting at the true data as to how people need to move and then applying the technological solutions to help deliver that. Whether that mobility on demand, whether that's adding in layers of highly automated driving systems to bring down the cost, hopefully one day, while increasing the quality of the service. Those are the types of things we need to be doing now.
2: One of the, the things that came up I think was Again, okay, looking at mobility platforms in the future. And there were some you know, innovative concepts that have been presented at CES, like Toyota's E-Pallet or the Mercedes Vision Urbanetic. Um, these are sort of platforms where you have a skateboard and then the actual pod that sits on the top can be anything from a goods delivery vehicle to a passenger carrying vehicle. Do you think we're gonna see more of that type of future of mobility where we have some flexibility between the, you know, the underlying chassis and then the thing that it carries? And that, that would be a benefit in future pandemics, being able to swap out these um, the bodies on the top for different purposes, to meet the current need. You know, At the moment, the needs are very different than they were before COVID, so you think that's so? Some- I,
1: I would go back, I would say to everyone, if you wanna go into to the autonomous tech space right now, what it, where would I recommend you go? I would recommend you go into delivery. Uh, There's a company out in the Bay Area, Neuro. I know them very well. I'm a big fan of theirs, but in, in the spirit of conflict of interest disclosure, I have former students that are there, right? So of course I know it better. But there are many other companies who are trying to come into this delivery space uh, at CES, the Consumer Electronics Show. I love the vehicle that could be a delivery and then you could pop put another pod on it and then it's passenger carrying. And so I do think that those are going to be in the short term, the most successful industries that actually get products to market sooner than the broad, just general driverless car industry.
2: Yeah. Michelle, your views on sort of adaptive mobility platforms and how they might play a role in the future.
3: Oh, I love it. Are you kidding? I think it's I think it's really brilliant. And as long as we make sure that we're looking at cleaner powertrains to go along with it, I think that's really essential. And that's one of the things that that I worry about right here and now is the um, electric powertrains. And what are, we, what are we doing going forward in the EV space? And if we think about what can we be doing right now to help deal with this, and this will benefit uh, highly automated vehicles as well, is EV charging infrastructure. It's needed everywhere. It's needed in China. It's needed in Europe. It's needed across the U.S. I'm not convinced that we have built... Um, or really proven the true benefit for US consumers for owning an electric vehicle. But your comments, uh, your opening comments about CO2 and greenhouse gases are, we really do need to be moving forward to cleaner powertrains. And we know that it's coming. And we know that we need the EV charging infrastructure to solve it. And it is not just put them in front of your grocery stores, because that's not going to be the only solution we need a really better thought out more widespread ev infrastructure to deal with these future vehicles hopefully there'll be fewer vehicles because they'll be highly automated and they can be highly utilized but you still do need to charge them and power them as well as
2: clean them Yeah. yeah i think when you when you start to look at the economic downturn. That we're about to experience, Michelle. When it, how will that sort of suppress the demand for, you know, personal mobility, so owning your own vehicle? Mm-hmm. And how do you think that, obviously, with the oil prices as well, it's kind right. of will it will it start now to skew us back to, like, let's right. burn some fossil fuel, but actually maybe not drive so much? You know, is, is it going to change right. people's behaviors in that way?
3: Well, so one of the big concerns that we have is that in this this era of physical distance and this fear for your biosafety? Will people turn away from highly shared systems of mobility, your your buses and your subways? And so if we look at what's been happening in China, right before uh, they shut down, I think they were at about 45 days supply for new passenger vehicles. During the shutdown, they jumped up to 444 days supply. And now that the dealerships are back opening and sales are happening, sales are picking back up phenomenally. Now, here in the US, we entered this with about 68 days of new vehicle inventory. I think last time I checked from Cox Automotive, we're about at 98 days supply. And then if we look at the used vehicle market, there's going to be a short-term glut of vehicles. So actually the price of vehicles are going to come down and you're going to have very, very favorable financing terms for this, which means if your disposable income is capped, but you still have some confidence that you're going to be employed, you might choose to spend some of those precious dollars to buy a new vehicle, which will guarantee that you can get to where you need to go. And in, in safely, at least from a biosafety perspective, especially if we see public transit being uh, services being diminished. Now, what we don't want to happen is a lot of people jumping in their cars and driving a lot more. That's not only bad for the environment, but it's also bad for safety. Go back to my numbers of 3,500 people dying on our roads every day. We don't want more of that. So we need to figure out what that solution is. So we'll see. It's, I mean, buying of passenger vehicles is positively correlated to consumer confidence, which is yeah. positively correlated to your disposable income. So we'll see what happens in, in the mid or longer term
2: it's a It's a fascinating time missy what's your, what's your views then on in terms of transportation in the future? how would you like to see it evolve? What do you think we need to be moving towards? Is it still electric connected, autonomous, and shared? Is that still the vision that we're all aiming for the north Star So my specialty
1: is in the area of autonomy. Um, I personally would love to see more electric cars. I totally agree with Michelle that it's nice to think about the electric vehicle, but until we have a larger, more supportive infrastructure, you know, I live in rural America, you know, it's very hard to have EVs here as a practical matter, just because of the lack of charging stations. So I would love to, but it's just not gonna happen in my life because I just couldn't get around. So yes, I, I think electric, I would like it to be the future. Now, whether it is, um, that's, that's above my pay grade. The connected situation is a little trickier. I am all for better networks of connectivity. Certainly the COVID um, crisis has taught me just how much more bandwidth I need and my students need. I I also have a teenager and when she's having her online classes and I'm having my online seminar, uh, that's a problem, right? So we definitely need better infrastructure in that way. Uh, But one of the things that I worry about in terms of the connectivity of driverless cars is that people will often have that wrong interpretation that you must have, you know, that somehow the car is doing some kind of control over some kind of connected network and, and that absolutely should never be the case. And so I worry that sometimes either resources get directed or people's misunderstanding causes problems and the development of the core safety technologies, fundamentally connected networks for driverless cars are a nice to have technology. They can help with efficiency. They can help with those remote supervision issues. They can provide better feedback. They can provide for a better experience. And so I'm all for that. But before we put the, you know, the cart before the horse, I wanna make sure that we get those core safety technologies addressed.
3: I hear Missy loud and clear on the, the issues of EVs. We are also, I try to be powertrain neutral. I'm a big fan of, of hydrogen hybrid as well as electric. I just want it to be cleaner. <laughs>
2: yeah, okay, super. So everyone, thank you very much for joining. Uh, Michelle, Missy, thanks for your insights today. It's been a, a really interesting for me. <music>
0: Welcome back, everyone, and thanks for listening. If you like what you heard today, please remember to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. This helps us grow our podcast and bring you even more great guests. Catch us next week for a brand new episode. Until next time, this has been the Future Positive Podcast. This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people and rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making change in the world 10 times faster. Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. XPRIZE, crazy ideas since 1994. Learn more at XPRIZE.org. See you next week.